On the 25th of January each year, millions of people across the globe will attend burnt suppers to honour Scotland's national bard. No other literary figure is commemorated to the extent that Burns is worldwide. In this episode of the Tay the Bard podcast series, we look at ways in which Burns Night celebrations have evolved since the early 19th century, all the time retaining Burns's poetry and song at their heart. Our guests today offer different perspectives on both performing at and organising Burns Suppers. Catherine Wilson is an Edinburgh-based poet and writer known for her reflections on the everyday, blended with a sense of humour and solemn questions about the big things in life. Jack Finlay is the associate producer of The Big Burn Supper, an 11-day festival in Dumfries with an eclectic mix of music, comedy and performance. Professor Jared Carruthers is the director of the Centre for Robert Burns Studies at the University of Glasgow and has spoken at Burns Suppers across the globe. So Jerry, you have a great deal of experience in speaking at Robert Burns Suppers. What is it about the Burns Supper that makes it so universal? Why is it so popular both at home and abroad? Well, I've been to Burns Suppers in New Zealand, China, the United States, France, Russia, other places too. And in one sense, Pauline, the answer is quite simple. The elements of a burn supper are food, drink, laughter, conviviality. You can't get much more universal than that. Needless to say, there's a lot more you can say on top of that. But these are very human occasions which may have begun somewhat artificially, but they've become recognised as part of, if you like, the international cultural calendar when we think in 2009 that there may have been as many as 90,000 burn suppers across the world. That's remarkable. And what is it that's changed about the celebration of the burn supper from its conception in the early 19th century to the present day? Well, if we go back to 1801, uh, properly speaking for the origins of a burns gathering, we get a small group of Ayrshire Burns uh, enthusiasts who are also businessmen who get together to have a dinner for Burns around about the time of his death in July to celebrate that five years afterwards, or to commemorate that, I should say. A year later, we have the first Burns Supper proper, uh, Greenock Burns Club in 1802. But it's actually the best part of another 20 years before we get something that we would recognise as the Burns Supper. And largely that comes down to one man, the Reverend Hamilton Paul, who comes up with the idea of reciting to a haggis and indeed addressing the haggis and making that a part of the canonical burn supper. From there on, the supper develops, and it's true to say in quasi-Masonic fashion because it's the Freemasonic model that's adopted so that today people throughout the world aren't really aware of Freemasonry they don't know that they're doing this, but they're celebrating in a free Masonic fashion. Now, that, in a sense, doesn't matter because what they're really celebrating is Robert Burns. But this develops, as most things do, not entirely naturally, but it becomes traditional. It becomes something that, in a sense, is uh, authentic because it's so accessible. As I said earlier, food, drink, songs, poetry... And of course, all of this revolving around the undoubted genius 
of Robert Burns. And it's both accessible and adaptable, isn't it? Because the celebrations that we hold now in the 21st century look quite different in some places to what they used to. So, Jerry, why do you think the celebration of Burns's work continues and indeed evolves in the 21st century? Two answers to that. One, it's accidental. All things are a bit accidental. If we think about Old Lang Syne, for instance, Burns's great song is a great song, but it's somewhat accidental that it becomes anthemic in a world sense, and largely that has to do with the Guy Lombardo dance band from Canada, which from the 1920s begin to insert it in Hogmanay celebrations, and from the 1940s especially, this becomes a canonical part of Hogmanay in New York, so that down to today in Times Square, Old Lang Syne, as you know, sounds at the bells at midnight. So in a sense, that's accidental and it belongs to the age of radio. That's essentially what popularises Old Lang Syne. The other side of it, of course, is that it is a brilliant song. Burns shows his genius in that song because there are at least four versions going back at least as far as the 16th century, which have something like the phrase of Old Lang Syne. But if we think about Burns's most immediate predecessor, the great Scots poet Alan Ramsay, in Alan Ramsay's hands, it's a song belonging to the English, or better, the British Civil War, about two comrades parting company after war, going their separate ways. Burns turns it into a universal song befitting the late 18th century, a song of emigration, a song about people never being able to see one another again, which was often the case due to war, emigration, etc. And if we think about it, one part of Burns is that great song of parting. And if we think about the Burns Supper, a great occasion of togetherness. And this is something quintessential about Burns. He does the simple but profound emotions brilliantly in both poems and songs. And this is true also of the occasions that come to be associated with them. He does togetherness, he does loss, he does love, he even does hatred. Burns truly is a great poet of humanity. That's one of these cheesy things that people say, but in a very quintessential thing, uh, or a sort of very quintessential way, this is true of Burns's creativity. He is an intellectual poet, he is also a great songwriter, and in both spheres he can push the buttons across our entire emotional range. And do you think that that's also one of the reasons that Burns is so popular on a worldwide scale? Absolutely. I think it's because when you read a Burns poem, you know you're reading a Burns poem. And I think that he has this, he's like a camera of Scotland at that moment in time. And I think that's one of the best skills of certain writers is, you know, you, you read Robert Burns, and you know what Scotland was like at that point of time. Um, you read Jane Austen and you know what England was like at that point of time. You know, these great writers that we celebrate for years and years, um, they hold up a mirror to society and they capture it how it was and they ask questions about it. Um, that's why Burns is so popular. I agree. And actually, the, that ability to capture the everyday in such rich and inspiring language, that's one of the things that makes Burns so universal and so identifiable so many people. So, Jerry, you are involved in a number of courses that educate people about Robert Burns, courses that are available online to a global audience. How do people respond to Burns' life 
and works people out with Scotland. The key thing about Burns is that he is an icon, which means that many people are familiar with the name or even the image of his face, but no, don't know much about him. As you well know, Pauline, we've had upwards of 18,000 people taking our online MOOC courses, and these people come from at least four continents. It depends how you count continents. And the response we invariably get is, I knew a little bit, I now know a lot more, I'm thinking about this man and how profound he was, both as a creative artist and in the context of his historical times. And many of our people were delighted to say who come in this course are encouraged to go and read the works more, listen to the songs more. And what they realise is that we have one of the first examples, really, of a worldwide celebrity, of a world writer, you might say, of a great international artist. Catherine, you've also been involved in workshops that educate young people about Robert Burns. How do they respond to Burns' life and works in your experience? I think that the point at which Burns' poetry really shines for young people is when it, it when you make art that is by, for and with them. So I think the point at which they really start to enjoy Robert Burns' work is when they can see the relevance between their own lives when they can make their own kind of Burns poetry. And I, I've always enjoyed doing things that, you know, involve other art forms that children are, are really interested in. So whether that be art and getting them to decorate a Burns poem, whether that be theatrics and kind of acting out bits of poetry or, you know, acting out the story of Tam O'Shanter. I think that's the point at which children really, really can understand why these words that were written, you know, however long ago are still relevant today. Jack, at first glance, the Big Burns Supper is quite unlike the traditional celebration of Burns that people have become accustomed to. Can you tell us a little of the history of the event and where the inspiration came from? Yeah, definitely. Um, I suppose the inspiration of the festival really comes from our executive producer, Graham Main. Um, for a long time in Graham's youth, he travelled uh, Europe and um, he spent a lot of time in Madrid. And every uh, every year on the 25th of January, Graham would bring people together to celebrate um, at the Burns Supper. And, um, you know, he hosted these himself. And, and if he did find a haggis to cook, that was great. It was a wee bit more difficult in Madrid. but um, <laughs> And he always made sure, um, which I would like to think that Burns did, that um, every person had to do a turn, whether that was a bit of poetry, um, whether that was a song, whether that was um, picking up an instrument and playing a tune. Um, and it awful, often, um, as it does today, ends in a massive celebration, um, usually in a in a bar or a or a club or or indeed um, in our case, uh, a Spiegel tent. And I think when he when he came back to Dumfries, um, in you know a dreaked, um, wet January, uh, he he went into the town centre and he saw that there was a lacking celebration. You know the pubs were quiet. Um, there was the very formal traditional burn suppers, and it wasn't very accessible. And so, you know, a couple of years years later, 2012, we stuck a great big Spiegel tent on the banks of Dumfries and we invited Big Country um, to come and perform. We had um, incredible Scottish artists like Eddie Reader um, come, who, who in turn, like Eddie, you know, she, she has a great soft spot for the Bard and, and indeed we thank Dumfries. And um, above all, our, our local pubs and our, our community were getting behind this idea that you don't have to um, be part of a of a Burns clubs um, to celebrate Burns. Uh, you can actually you can do it in your local community centres, in your local pubs, um, and you can actually experience that authentic um, Burns night experience uh, in a 
in a tent. So taking forward the idea that you can retain Burns's poetry and song at the heart of your celebration, but celebrating the creativity and the sociability of Burns and his legacy in a, in a non-traditional way. Yeah, ex- exactly that. You know, the festival's ethos um, is all about bringing people together um, through cultural experiences and celebrations and creativity. And you'll see that, especially in this year's programme, um, which is incredibly diverse. Um, You've got incredible ensembles like the Hebrides Ensemble. You've got the London Gospel Community Choir. You've got comedian Zed Byrne. Um, and then, again, at the core of that, you've got the local people who are um, still true to those um uh, sort of traditions in Dumfries and even yourself you'll know that y- your colleagues they'll come down and they'll deliver incredible unique sessions and candlelit lectures about Burns and that's 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 so valuable to our programme because it means young people who are accessing culture they are given the opportunity to go you know what I'll, I'll go catch Bill Bailey that'll be awesome but you know what on the same night two hours before you know maybe I'll jump in and I'll catch that session with Jerry and I'll I'll I'll, I'll understand where the heritage sort of originates from and why this festival exists. So learning about Robert Burns alongside the celebration. Yeah. yeah. Do you find that artists are drawn to the Big Burns Supper as a way to celebrate the Bard? I think our Scottish artists are. Um, your Eddie Readers, um, your Katie Tunstall's, uh, your big countries. Um, Katie Tunstall recently tweeted, she said... Um, she says, I'm really looking forward um, to playing a home home audience at a proper um, knees-up Burns night. And that, that enthusiasm is really infectious and I think it will make for a really incredible set in the Spiegel tent. And I think there's there's other artists out there um, who, are, who are drawn to it because of our location and because of our uniqueness. You know, there's nobody else on earth that has a programme as, as broad as ours. Jerry, celebrations of Burns seem to become bigger and more diverse with every passing year. Why is that? I think in some ways that is inherent in the man and his work because although we're talking about a poet dead for over 200 years, Burns is very modern. For instance, he knows there's more than one way of being Scottish. He writes sympathetically about gypsies, about women. He is the first Scottish poet really in several centuries to write sympathetically about the Highlander. He is a man who's very aware of diversity. He's a man who's very aware of different moods and emotions. And the result of that is that ordinary folk, whatever that means, artists, other writers, other nations, find him very accessible. The Scots language notwithstanding, and that's far from being inaccessible, Burns is someone who genuinely does offer a whole range of um, viewpoints, partly because he quite often writes in character and he can imagine himself as other things and being in other places. And so clearly that appeals to people. And one of the other things he is, which is um, fairly obvious in a sense, we tend to forget it now, is a proto-romantic poet who's brilliant at landscape painting. And so when it comes to um, artists turning to Burns, they find some of the scenes, if you like, ready-made. And also, he has a rather colourful biography. There's no way, get, uh, no way of getting away from that. And again, it's quite easy to translate the drama of that life into sculpting, painting, novels about the poet, theatre productions about the poet, musical, other songs about the poet. 
a man whose work translates into the folk idiom, the classical idiom, even into punk rock. I remember in 1978, the Dickies doing a version of Old Lang Syne. In a sense, you can do anything with anything. And Burns, as a genuine creative artist, would have no problem with that. But there is something special about Burns, and that is he provides such a rich palette to begin with that many other people um, can and indeed do work with. Yes, a man who lived for only 37 years, who has inspired thousands of creatives, thousands of artists for over 200 years, is remarkable. Jack, so could you tell us what the most memorable performance you've ever seen of one of Barnes's works? I think six years ago we attempted to um, uh, take on developing a, a cabaret show called La Haggis. And um, we put a lot of Burns's work into it, a lot of his songs, you know, A Fond Kiss, um, A Man's a Man for All That, um, you know, My Love is Like a Red, Red Rose. And um, there's this moment, and definitely the, the, the previous shows we've done, where um, there's a Scottish singer, singer-songwriter called Marianne Fraser. She comes all the way down from uh, Fort William uh, to perform with us. And it's her rendition of Aphon Kiss um, that I can never forget, really. Um, when she sings, you know, the whole, the, whole, the whole tent stops and they engage with every word that comes out of her mouth. Um, and, you're, you know, you're no longer in Dumfries, you're no longer in Scotland, or even the world for that matter. You're just, you're lost in the Spiegel tent and, these, and this, you know, beautifully... Um, poetic love song that that Robert Burns wrote, you know, two hundred years ago, and then you look around the Spiegel tent and you see that there's other people who are engaging uh, with this song who wouldn't normally typically engage with Robert Burns, and they're doing it without realizing, and it's it's quite special. There's a real magic to it, and you know, at the same time, there is a an aerial acrobat in the air who's spinning, and I think we're looking at different ways of challenging the idea of how. Um, not just old audiences and, and our older generations, but how our young audiences are now um, being exposed to, to Robert Burns's work. And um, it's a legacy that we hope to continue for you know many years to come. And I'm sure that we can look forward to some really new and exciting performances of Burns this season and hopefully in the years to come. So thank you very much, all. I have one final question for you, Jerry, and that is, what is the most memorable interpretation or performance of Burns that you have seen or witnessed? Can I answer that, Pauline, by saying one of the reasons I know that Burns is so brilliant, one of the reasons I utterly love Burns, is that he is so amenable to some of the best, most brilliant performers. And I'm thinking here of personal favourites like Emily Smith or Robin Stapleton. My own absolutely personal favourite, if pushed on it, would be Paolo Nettini's rendition of A Man's A Man. I worked with a, with Paolo on a programme where he performed that and it was just brilliant, blow-you-away stuff. And Paolo clearly got into the character and felt the emotion, the power of both the words and tune. And I remember standing there thinking, this is Burns in the 21st century. Burns has worked for over 200 years. Burns will work for the next 2,000 years.